on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. In any village, whether that be the village of evangelical Christianity or trans community or, um, you know, QAnon community, like whoever it is, there is a monster figure generally identified in that enclave. The, the corruptive evil that lurks on the edges uh, of the respectable and, you know, just might be also like growing inside the heart of the village as well, right? Like in some kind of terrifying, creepy way to transphobic society that is queer and trans people, right? Like, oh, over there, there's these trans people and, and then maybe they're really close to us as well. You know, like this kind of, maybe the call is coming from inside the house kind of terror. And to, you know, my own community, like of activists, social justice people, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different monsters we identify. Just to notice that this mythologizing idea of the secret monster is there, like, you know, and the, the, our response to it tends to be this, this panicked kind of response that comes from like the villagers kind of archetype, like you know, grab the pitchforks and the torches and burn them out. And while that is a deeply understandable response, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because, because all of us carry like a seed of the monster inside of us and getting rid of one doesn't actually mean that we are dealing with the monstrous, you know, in, in a helpful or healing way. What does it mean to be a man today? And what is masculinity reclaimed from the toxic patterns of domination and disconnection? In an era polarized by conflict and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the ancient and emerging mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of imaginal possibility. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Kai Chang Tom, a certified somatic sex educator, qualified mediator, clinical hypnotherapist, and poet based in Toronto. She's the author of six award-winning books in various genres, including the Stonewall Honor Book award-winning essay collection, I Hope We Choose Love. Kai Chang's work focuses on the intersection of social justice, pleasure activism, and the transformative approaches to healing conflict. A noted speaker and practitioner of somatic wellness, healing, and group process facilitation, Kai Chang supports individuals and groups who are seeking to repair relationships and to make transformative change. Her latest book, Falling Back in Love with Being Human, Love Letters to Lost Souls, was released in August. This particular interview was inspired by an essay that was recently published by Kai Chang called The Village in the Woods. Our conversation was recorded live as one of the solar sessions held within the School of Mythopoetics. I was so delighted by the richness of our time that I've decided to publish the episode here as well. I'll include a link to the essay in the show notes. And a heads up before we begin, you may already know The Mythic Masculine is now on Substack. You are welcome to become a free subscriber and gain access to all public posts and episodes. If you are financially abundant, please consider becoming a paid subscriber for $5 a month. This supports me to continue the many hours of effort it takes to research and produce each episode. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. You'll get access to exclusive posts, episode transcripts, and more. Visit themythicmasculine.com supporter to join. Or if you're already a Substack free member, check out the upgrade option to become a paid subscriber. And one last shout out. I definitely appreciate when folks come to me at events like the recent Imagine Festival on Orcas Island and share their praise for this podcast. 
Plus, sometimes I receive a free meal, like from Brandon and his farm to ferry truck, as well as a bottle of Odin's Mead from Pixie Mead. Thank you. It keeps me going on this labor of love. And now, enjoy my conversation with Kai Cheng Tom. My guest today first caught my eye through, I believe it was Instagram, and there was a number of posts made that I felt really intrigued my interest in speaking with this guest, who is, and then when I was able to research more, is very well-educated in many different modalities, which we'll probably speak to a little of here. But I wanted to offer a little bit of my guest, Kai Chang Tom, and share a little bit with you, who you're about to speak with. So Kai Chang Tom is a certified uh, somatic sex educator, qualified mediator, clinical hypnotherapist, and certified professional coach based in Toronto. She's also the author of six award-winning books in various genres, including the Stonewall Honor Book award-winning essay, uh, essay collection, I Hope We Choose Love. Kai Chang's work focuses on the intersection of social justice, pleasure activism, and the transformative approaches to healing conflict. A noted speaker and practitioner of somatic wellness, healing, and group process facilitation, Kai Cheng supports individuals and groups who are seeking to repair relationships and to make transformative change. Her latest book, Falling Back in Love with Being Human, Love Letters to Lost Souls, will be available very soon, actually, uh, August 1st, in just a few days. And so I'm delighted to welcome onto the stage Kai Cheng Tom. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. Uh, I'm just really excited to get to make some contact with you and the wonderful learning community that is the school. Mm. Thank you. So I wanted to bring up, well, first, we, we don't have to head directly there, but you've written a really powerful essay, which you know you, you sort of trickled out over Instagram. <laughs> I keep teasing uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, which, you know, I, I know how that is sometimes when, yeah, there's a piece and it's, you know, there's there's bursts of, creative inspiration and then maybe it goes quiet for a bit and you know and so the pieces that you, you did post really drew my attention and the essay which is called the village and the woods mm-hmm. I understand yeah well mm-hmm. well I actually had a sneak peek of it you were you know I was grateful for you to send it along to me but let's let's kind of make our way there mm-hmm. you know before we arise now I'd love to hear a little of your yeah you know, these strands of your work of what's drawn you to conflict resolution you know gender exploration and, and it seems compassion, the, all these threads seem to weave together, but I'd love to hear a little bit for you, like how these became the, in a way, the core pillars that you seem to approach largely through writing, but also, you know, somatic practicing and more. So yeah, please. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we were talking a little bit about emergence before the call started, like before the recording started, and it all has really been completely emergent for me. Like, and I think the mysterious and wonderful thing about being like a trans person or like a wounded healer in this world is that we very rarely actually choose these things. Like we're we're drawn on a path of exploration that then leads to like the blossoming of some kind of practice, um, which is exactly how it happened for me. Like, and I mean, I'm being playful here, but if we if we go to the mythopoetic, I really think of queer and trans and gender expansive people as like carrying a lot of the witch archetype inside of ourselves, which Mm -hmm. is to say that there is just an innate knowing in the body that we're meant to pursue something that is beyond the realm of the known, like beyond the realm of 
uh, the gender that is given to us or the sexual orientation that we're supposed to have, right? And it's the wound of knowing we're supposed to pursue this thing that is not approved of by the society of the archetypal village. I think that grants us a lot of insight into the process of healing and transformation. At least that's the way it worked for me. Like I started out as this like trans kid growing up in suburban Vancouver. And I was like, what's um, going on? What's wrong with me? And the more I learned about mental health, social justice, the more I started to wonder like, okay, maybe there's not something wrong with me. What's wrong with the world around me? And that essentially is how I came into all the work I do now. And you're really right. Like the, the pillars of the work are radical love, transformative conflict, and like the liberation of, of the body through the sensual. Mm. Mm, that's it. The liberation of the body through the sensual. It, you, you Just to bookmark that for a second, you use a phrase in your bio around uh, the, maybe it's approach to unifying these threads of love and justice. And I believe you use the term loving justice as, yes. a, as a theory and practical <laughs> methodology. And I'd love for you to tease that apart a bit. Like, what, how is that a response to, for example, how, how you may understand social justice to be or even, you know, mob justice or like what is, what is it, what loving justice that was important to bring those together? Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you asked this question. So, you know, I was drawn to social justice as a teenager because of this very thing, like about seeking liberation through the body, like wanting to be free to pursue pleasure and fulfillment and wanting other people to have access to that. And social justice and queer justice culture, like as I came into them, seemed to be like the right place at the time. Like there was so much rhetoric around freedom, sex positivity, radical love, Except, you know, actually the, the embodied practice that I experienced in the world of activism was generally not that. Like, it actually really seemed to be like a reenactment of, of like purity culture and like rigid ways of thinking. And I'm not saying that to malign the activism world. I just mean to say, I think that when we are steeped in systemic oppression, the worldview and the mindset of that oppression remains inside of us, even when we are actively trying to build a different world. And so unfortunately, I think that in the social justice sphere, we can still encounter a lot of rigidity, a lot of fear of the body, a lot of sex negativity, a lot of fear of the feminine, to be honest. And for me, loving justice was an attempt to, to speak back like against what I perceive to be prevailing currents in the social justice world, which are like rigid, punitive focused, about demanding ideological purity from people. For me, loving justice is about accepting that the human body is a leaky container. We are messy. We are monstrous even. And actually, that's not something to be feared. That's something to be celebrated. And when, when we go into the dangerous territory of you know, leaking onto other people, right? Like when we, when we cross one another's boundaries and stuff, the, the way back to right relationship, I think, is love and not punishment. Mm. Mm. This is something I think we'll return to certainly as one of the core axes of the essay that was named mm -hmm. earlier on. And I want to touch on something too. One, uh, another aspect of your, your history there is that you spent seven years training in social work in clinical mental health and yes. practiced four years as a clinical social worker around trauma, sexuality, gender, family systems. And my curiosity is, 
what what emerged from that time? Like what were the what was what did you see there that has really informed now what you seem you know passionately lit up about that perhaps the you know the quote the mainstream maybe doesn't know because they haven't spent time in these realms and with these folks. Yeah, what what has emerged from that? Ooh, yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, the world of clinical mental health holds many wisdoms, <laughs> but it also holds many terrors. <laughs> And I think what I saw there was an equal helping of both. I think what I really value and treasure from that time in my life is I had to, as all, all social workers really do, I had to encounter such a wide variety of people um, from such a wide variety of uh, backgrounds and places in life um, who were suffering. Um, and I think to be a, a good practitioner uh, of social work or um, psychotherapy, which is hard to do, <laughs> like uh, I think it, it, it's um, a moving target being a good practitioner uh, of social work because of the, the oppressive history uh, of that profession. Um, to be really good at it, um, we have to set aside our own ideology and really meet people where they are at. Um, you know, the ideology that is central actually has to be one that is emergent and not rigid and focused on right relationship with the people in front of us rather than what we think is good for them or what we think they should want. Um, and that's always a struggle in the heart of the social work world because to do the work well, we have to focus on, you know, right relationship. But the mandate of the clinical sphere is to in some ways, enforce and uphold the law. And trying to dance between those two poles is what tends to burn social workers out, what causes social workers to become jaded and like to leave like the, the realm of the liberatory and become, you know, the kind of like social worker people don't want to see, right? It's, it's like this constant struggle. And that's what I bring with me like to, to, the, to the work that lights me up now, I think is the knowledge that uh, we do have to meet each other where we are at, and that we're trying to build like a different world, one where emergence and the unfolding mystery of right relationship isn't constrained by a, like a rigid set of ideals like colonial law, for example. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear that. And I think the quote that comes to me, which I don't believe you used in your essay, but you're probably familiar with is, I think it was Audre Lorde, the master's tools could not dismantle the master's Oh, yes. Power. I love that word. Yeah. And so there's some, there's some recognition of like, oh, wait a second. The way that we're trying to get to where we wish to go requires a different set of skills, a different way of meeting the moment, meeting the relationship where, where it's at, I hear. And, and now turning to your essay, now The Village in the Woods, which I think, yeah, binds a lot of these themes together. You speak of initially, I think it was at university, right? When, mm -hmm. yeah, when you came into, uh, like, you you didn't put it in quotations, but you you made it title case. How I learned to be a young queer activist. Yes. There, like, there, there's some sense, like, almost like a very iconic, you know, moment and time for you. And there's one line you said they were deeply obsessed with sex, but they also seemed very afraid of it. Yes. Like something along those lines, like this, like, and I hear the pleasure element, right? Of like, wait, but, but is there pleasure in it? Like this sort of, you know, railing against how it is. And, but something I do want to point out from the essay, and this is naming what you've, you know, already brought forth is 
And I just, I'd love to read this line. It says, you know, there's something haunting in the parallels essentially between your own upbringing in the evangelical Christian church mm-hmm. and the particular notion of charmed enclaves of ideologically enlightened people, communities mm-hmm. with supposed self-knowledge of the nature of good and evil who must constantly defend themselves from the putrefying encroachment of evil. Oh, that is a good line. Good job, that's Pat. Good, right? that's pretty, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. You get your line read back to you, and you're like, "Well, that's pretty good." So there's something around this this recognition of this parallel, right? And I'd love for you to speak a little more of that now. As I think, what like what we're doing, what was so exciting for me about this essay applied to this conversation was what I see is you're applying essentially a a mythic understanding to what can seem very in a, in a sort of horizontal, flatlined literal conversation right or, or landscape a, a landscape of the literal it mm-hmm. just feels like it's one against the other right it's just yes. clear one against the other but suddenly mm-hmm. when you when you illuminate the topography of the mythic suddenly much more becomes possible and so yeah i'd love if you could maybe start here with this how did you notice those parallels and you know what what a you know kind of terrifying but but necessary thing to recognize Yes. Well, I just got chills as you articulated that thing about using the landscape of the mythic. I was like, oh, you're right. That is what's happening. I'm like, so I, I so appreciate that. And um, yeah, to your question, I mean, you know, it's sort of like the the benefit of having grown up um, in a Chinese evangelical family. You know, I, I should say it's mostly my mom. My dad is not so into the religion part, <laughs> just in case you're listening, dad. <laughs> you know, But yeah, the, the gift of growing up, you know, influenced by Christian evangelical ideology and then coming into like a radical queer ideology is that I did get to really deeply explore both of those things. And both of them are actually heavily inflected by a mythology of their own, of course, the mythology of the Christ (laughs) figure and the mythology within radical queer culture, which tends to be located around like sort of like archetypes of a chosen family and community and the, you know, and and the heroic figure that, you know, the magician arising out of chaos, you know, to bring like a new world into being. And yeah, I mean, what, what, what was haunting and terrifying is, you know, in, in my evangelical upbringing as a queer person, it was very clear, like, that I wasn't free, right? Like that, that according to that mythology, a part of my soul was the devil, right? This innate knowing that I was into men and that I wanted to wear dresses like that was, you know, part of the devil. And I should seek to purify myself from it and also quarantine other people from that thing, lest they be corrupted. And when I ran away into queer community, I thought, thank God, now I can let the devil inside me be liberated and seen as good. And that was kind of the offering. That is always like kind of the broken promise of, I think, a lot of queer, feminist, new age communities is that, you know, we will be able to go there in our full freakish selves and be celebrated and safe. The, unfortunately, it doesn't quite work out that way because of, again, this sort of weird haunting reenactment that happens, right? And, and so what I notice in a queer community and, yeah, a lot of the other kinds of progressive communities that I've come into contact with is there's this sort of initial fascination with the sexual Um, which, by the way, happens in evangelical community as well. There's like, um, whoa, like there's there's a recognition of the power um, in the sensual, the embodied, but there is also this terror of it. And I think the double bind that progressive communities tend to place us in, like everyone in around sex, is this sort of the message that, oh, sex is good and we should be having it, 
But if you have it wrong, <laughs> if you if you have it in the <laughs> wrong way, then you know you're you're a bad person and a monster. And the thing is, nobody really knows how to have sex in the right way, right? Like the sensual is mysterious, it is dynamic and iterative, so it's chaotic and changing, which means we are absolutely going to feel uh, frightened, triggered you know, um, terrified while it's happening. And, you know, I, I really want to resist like uh, w- what I see as like a culture of trying to place like a, like a step-by-step set of rules about how to have sex in the right and good way, because they don't end up working. They end up just creating like a rigidity that prevents us from being in fluid relationship. And then, you know, unfortunately, this ends up becoming like a source of like enormous pain and, and like, like toxicity between us. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's speak about the erotic then, because as you said, that there's this this power clearly, and this I would call it like a fear and a fascination. Right? And I think that there's something in the initial. The, well, let's say the current and, and likely the former, but but certainly the current entanglement in a way with you know, trans fear, transphobia, queerphobia around this link to the erotic, right? Like that, yes. that clearly seems like it's part of it. And, yeah. and there's something in that, that is, is, it's like, so like radioactive in a way, and I, you know, I say that in quotations because it brings up, I think a lot of the latent, you know, suspicion or, or just general fear of the erotic, right? Like there is one, this may slight tangent, if you permit me, but I somehow oh, I, I thought, yeah, I thought recently of the scene in Ace Ventura, right? Like the Ooh, first Ace Ventura. Yes. Film. Oh God. Yes. Oh, right, that's right? Yeah, exactly. Now you know exactly what scene, but back in the day, this might've been what early nineties. And it I was, was thinking yeah. of that scene, right? Yeah. And I, and I recall it, of course, anybody who hasn't seen it, there's this scene, I believe it parodies the crying game, right? Which is, I guess the character, the main character finds out that the, the woman he was with was actually a trans man and that, you know, this big reveal, all this stuff. And so Ace Ventura parodies that. And Jim Carrey's character, of course, goes through the, you know, same sort of process, realizes the character he was with was, quote, actually a trans man. And then, you know, there's this kind of very disgusted kind of reaction he has kind of over the top. And this essay I was reading was, I believe, written by also a trans person. I can't remember if it's trans woman or man, but it was very interesting how it said, of course, that scene would be very difficult to play now without a huge backlash but Ooh. that the it sort of tapped into a kind of latent fear of in this case perhaps like a, a, a cis man's attraction to yes. that transgressive archetype right and mm-hmm. so in that sense because it was so radioactive in a sense like that allowing that in the truth mm-hmm. of that in to say you know a sort of colonized cis you know binary paradigm it was like that has to be violently suppressed yeah so so i guess what i'm trying to say is right i just i'm curious again this link between there's this deep link between the erotic and it's almost Mm -hmm. you know seductive power uh, and depth and the sort Mm -hmm. of unintegrated eros within the culture itself like within the even within the binary system so anyway i just thought i'd lay that out a bit and you know i'm sure something stirred for you Absolutely. 5,000 things. I'm so glad you brought up Ace Ventura. I love to talk about Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Uh, yeah, and I mean, to, to ground that conversation, like, you're absolutely right. Like, it, it is about the erotic. And I think the culture of panic, which is really like the central element of, of that essay that, that we're talking about, The Village in the Woods, 
I think begins with a fear of the erotic and the embodied, right? You know, you're pointing here to, you know, what, what drives the culture of transphobia and queerphobia is, is the link to the erotic. And I would say if we, we extrapolate that a little bit, like even beyond queerphobia, when we get to like the problem of, say, call out culture or cancel culture, as it appears on the left or on the right, there's this like kind of obsessive uh, kind of desire to purify the body of like unwanted, like unwanted ideology or unwanted desire, right? Like if only I can just like get inside myself and like scrub out all the bad things, then I'll be the perfect activist or the perfect Christian, you know, whatever. And I think the thing about the erotic is that it reminds us that the body is full of these sort of, you know, leaky temptations, right? These desires and impulses we don't fully understand and cannot control. And the tragedy is that when we try to control them, we end up often causing more harm than, than good. And when I think about Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, right, it's, it does. So there's this scene that parallels the crying game, which is an earlier film, you know, where in Pet Detective, the Jim Carrey character you know, realizes he's had sex with a trans person and then has a sort of violent, terrified, throwing up in the toilet reaction, right? Which is like, you know, okay, wh whatever. So, that, so you know, it, it, it shows something. I think what, what, what haunts me about that film is the parallel between that scene and the denouement of, of the film, which is where that same trans woman is identified as the villain and then um, is like stripped naked in front of a group of police officers who then when they see her body, because there's a shot that actually shows that she has a penis, right? Like underneath her underwear, all start throwing up in front of her. And, you know, the, the, the terrifying thing about that for me is it's a children's film. It's played for laughs. And if we just think about if a cisgender woman in a film was stripped naked in front of a group of men and like denounced as a villain, that would be a really different scene, right? But it's because there's been this like thing about, there's this fear of the erotic and like the, the unknown desire that like the idea of it's, yeah, that, that, that punishment sort of like emerges into the scene, right? Like, oh, because Jim Carrey's character has been tricked, you know, into following his temptation of the body, then it is culturally permissible to publicly shame and humiliate and also like, you know, potentially grievously harm, right? Like this trans person. And that's what happens in real life, actually, is that people are like, oh, there's these drag queens walking out there or these trans people walking around out there. And, you know, they're tempting. They might you know, corrupt the children. We should kill them, right? That is the logic of the village in the woods that's in the essay. Oh, I feel something in myself that, uh, that I don't like. Why don't I kill that other person who awakens that feeling inside of me? Mm. Mm. Thank you for that. You know, I think it might be helpful as well for the listener. And thanks for those tuning in live with us that how about we speak to a little, I mean, you know, I'm tempted almost to read the opening of your, of your essay. Uh, oh yes. Because it's such a great, but, but, but perhaps you could, you know, there's, it's a couple paragraphs to sort of set the tone or maybe just a paragraph. I don't know. Does that feel oh, you, totally. you have it there for you? Yeah. Okay. I love that. Now I just it, have to pull it up. <laughs> <laughs> this feels at the time, I, I think to, to lay that mythic framework, because that, that's why I think it's, it was so uh, helpful to, to enter into this because without it, again, these forces can feel again, it's a little too murky or too, too locked, right. Again, in two different binaries. Who's the monster? Who's the village, right? So I feel like, yeah, I'd love for you to just to, to enter us into the story a little bit, if you will. Sure, yeah. Are we thinking to read 
just like the once from, upon a time you know just oh for, yeah for, let's do that i for love a that. paragraph or two how about that yeah yeah okay. once upon a time <laughs> once upon a time there was only the woods the humans lived there in terror amid the shadows monsters stalked the darkness between the trees and the humans were vulnerable because they were easily dispersed and had few strategies for protection even worse the monsters often presented themselves in varying shapes, appearing to be good, beautiful, and wise. Those who were bitten by a monster and by some miracle managed to survive were sometimes corrupted and transformed into monsters themselves. It was a terrifying time to be alive. One day, the humans banded together and formed a village. To build this village, they cut down many trees in the heart of the woods. They built a fire pit in every house for it was well known that the monsters were afraid of fire. The leaders organized the other humans into families, and the families were put into the houses. They also built a great temple in the center of the village, where they kept a bonfire burning at all times. Only the most good, beautiful, and wise of the villagers were invited to tend this sacred fire. It was said that the flames would purify the village and keep the monsters out, and for a time, the humans were safe. Yet as the moons went by, some of the humans began to report that they had been attacked by monsters in the dark of night. Sometimes the attacks happened when a human wandered too far into the woods. And sometimes the attacks happened in the dark corners of the village. Because the monsters attacked in the dark, it was impossible to see their faces. And so the village leaders built bigger fires and laid down stronger laws. In the light of these greater flames, the monsters were revealed to be some of the same good, beautiful, and wise villagers who had been chosen to tend the temple. These traitors were branded in the flames and driven out of the village. And for a time, the humans were safe until once again, the village people began to report monster attacks. And this time it was revealed that some of the village leaders were the monsters. Once again, they were branded and driven into the woods. The village leaders were replaced and built, they built even bigger fires and made even harsher laws to prevent the village's contamination. And beyond the village, in the dark of the woods, the monsters still hide along with the humans who were caught breaking the rules. It is said that the two groups have become so intermingled, it is difficult to tell one from the other, the monsters and the exiled humans in the woods. It is said that they are waiting, waiting for their time, waiting to strike or to tell their story. No one knows. Thank you for that evocative invocation. I'd love to, uh, you do it in the essay, but again, to open up now. So how do, how do we understand the village? How do we understand the woods? Maybe we start there and that interplay between what, you know, what I see as civilization and essentially the uncivilized, you know, the, the, the wicked paganry, as the Irish might say. But, <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, I love yeah, that. That, <laughs> that dynamic. I'm, I mean, I'd be curious to hear how you illuminate that further. Yeah. I'm trying to make it simple. Okay. So, you know, in, in the archetypal landscape, the village, I would see that as like the realm of the known and the conscious and the ordered those parts of ourselves and the collective that we can see and understand easily that feel safe and unchallenging to us. And beyond the village, 
there is the landscape of the woods, which I would characterize as the place of the unknown, the unknown inside of ourselves and the unknown inside of the collective, the other as well, that mysterious place that we tend to be afraid of because we don't know what's out there, right? But also because in the unknown, there is risk. There is the possibility of pain. Um, there always is, right? And yet also in the woods, there is temptation because in the unknown parts of the self and in the unknown parts of the other, there is the erotic, the mysterious, the powerful, the emergent. And so we are um, simultaneously drawn to the woods from the village and we um, are terrified of the woods and try to stay in the village, right? And this thing about, about fire, right, is that we try to illuminate uh, the darkness from within the village. We try to, we use, you know, what we might call like enlightenment knowledge, right? Or like, like the creation of collective knowledge to, to try to, to shed illumination into the shadows of the woods, which is not a bad idea, actually. Like, that's great. <laughs> what happens that gets a little weird is when we start to become too worshipful of the fire and to demonize the darkness. And that's where we start to become, like, we, we get sort of the, the emergence of, of zealotry and ideological purity culture, where we start to create intense like rules or like punitive paradigms, because we're trying to restrict the woods. We, we start to say, don't explore the woods. That's bad. Stay here in the village. Thank you for that. You know, it strikes me, you know, you used the word panic earlier, right? And Ooh. I'm sure you, you may or may not know right, the origins of the word panic from pan, right? Yes. The god pan. And of course, <laughs> when we talk about essentially the, you know, the wild erotic, this, this you know, force. I have done a lot of work with the mythopoetic men's movement, right? Like sort of the Ooh. strands of Robert Bly and Iron John. Cool. And he, you know, he talks a lot about this idea of the, of course, the wild men, which is often misrepresented as a kind of, I don't know, a kind of like a over, overly aggressive or some kind of, you know, this like violent and aggressive. And mm -hmm. the distinguishment, at least that Bly makes there is he calls it the, the difference between the savage man and the wild man. Mm -hmm. Right. The savage man is more, you know, you hear, you know, going into a mall and shooting it up. Right. Like that's that mm -hmm. kind of just reckless violence mm -hmm. often by men. Right. Is mm -hmm. that kind of that kind of savagery. And one way to understand that is that it's that's actually not wild in the sense that the old understanding, like as if wild is to mean deep attunement with mm -hmm. the intelligence of of the of wildness. Right. Um, mm -hmm. of life itself. And there, that's how I also understand Pan, of course, right? The the, the god that I, I believe was also maybe perhaps an inspiration for how we get the the Christianized version of the devil. I think so. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, like the you know the half man, half goat, the you know often with horns, and that's usually the depiction, at least mythic and mythologically, right, of this kind of terrorizing satanic figure. And yet, of course, in the earlier times, that that was actually understood to be a deeply attuned figure right that was actually the protector of the forest mm -hmm. and so i see in this interplay like the the tides of the times and how <clears throat> well, how we cast the characters in the play right can make them seem nefarious or or heroic or mm -hmm. you know everything in between and you do this even further right you talk about the different archetypes maybe you could illuminate now you know the priest and the witch and and those Oh, yeah. It, it, yes. Well, yeah. How we cast the characters in the play and like who we give time on stage really changes how we understand the story. Right. And uh, yes, if we look at this kind of the idea of uh, like the, the landscape of the village, we, we tend to see 
there are some archetypes that emerge in this story uh, of, of panic and like the struggle of good versus evil, right? Like in the first place, we have this idea that the village is enlightened, right? Like literally by, you know, the light of the fire, enlightened and cast against the, the darkness of the woods where the monsters live, right? And I mean, some archetypes I think that a lot of us can recognize in, in our own communities, right? In our own enclaves are like the archetype of the priest, like the leader who who seems to know, right? Like who seems to be given like a mandate from the divine to tell us what is good. There are literal priests in the Christian church, but there are also priest-like figures. I think in any cultural or ideological movement, people in social justice movements, for example, who, you know, like acquire notoriety and like, you know, followers for their political ideology, you know, in some senses, maybe like you and I are those people, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, we have a school or a following or whatever, and it's, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, dear bio, like whoever, right? Like we acquire um, follow a following for, for better and for worse. There are zealots, like the archetype of the person who is, or an enforcer, like the person who is like kind of rigidly attending to the rules and invigilating other people, like you're doing it wrong, you know, doing the call out, denouncing the monster. And, and then I think the two archetypes that I'm hesitating to introduce because they're kind of really tender are, of course, mm -hmm. like the, the monster archetype and the victim mm -hmm. archetype. Let's start with the monster, maybe. Like in any enclave, in any village, whether that be the village of evangelical Christianity or trans community or, um, you know, QAnon community, like whoever it is, there is a monster figure generally identified in that enclave. The, the corruptive evil that lurks on the edges uh, of the respectable and, you know, just might be also like growing inside the heart of the village as well, right? Like in some kind of terrifying, creepy way to transphobic society that is queer and trans people, right? Like, oh, over there, there's these trans people and, and then maybe they're really close to us as well. You know, like this kind of, maybe the call is coming from inside the house kind of terror. And to, you know, my own community, like of activists, social justice people, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different monsters we identify. But I think the two that I hear the most about are like, the secret bigot, like we're always looking for like, like the secret or internalized oppressor inside of ourselves. And we want to, you know, denounce that whenever it comes out. And then there is like the secret abuser, right? The person in say the progressive men's movement or the feminist movement who is secretly doing some kind of abuse and also needs to be denounced and driven out. And I want to be really careful here and say, abuse is real. Like abuse is real. It does happen in every community and it isn't acceptable. That said, I think what we're talking about here is not so much a refutation of the fact that abuse occurs, but like just to notice that this mythologizing idea of the secret monster is there, like, you know, and the, the, our response to it tends to be this, this panicked kind of response that comes from like the villagers kind of archetype, like you know, grab the pitchforks and the torches and burn them out. Um, and while that is a deeply understandable response, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because, because all of us carry like a seed of the monster inside of us and getting rid of one doesn't actually mean that we are dealing with the monstrous, you know, in, in a helpful or healing way. And then I guess the, the, the corollary archetype to that is, is the victim archetype, right? Like the person who is violated or experiences violation. And I think the fascinating thing about the victim archetype 
is that it's always in this dance with the monster archetype. Sometimes the victim archetype is diametrically opposed to the monster. Like, oh, there's like this perfect person. I think, you know, in transphobic community, we see the archetype of the victim embodied usually by white cisgender women who are saying, I was traumatized by seeing a trans person in the locker room, defend me, right? Like there's always this call, protect the white women and children. And so there's that. But but I think that the other thing about the victim archetype is if you're not the perfect innocent, then you are like the besmirched or the sullied, the victim we forget and like throw onto the side of the road. And, and we see that actually really a lot with, you know, the way that missing and murdered indigenous women are treated in colonial society. Like if you're not this perfect angel victim, then you will be thrown away and forgotten because mm-hmm. you're too scary or too damaged. And I think that's the tragedy as well of, of like getting lost in, in the archetypal village in the woods struggle. It is that we dehumanize and, and like no one there is like really held in, in the deep spirit of, of love. Mm. Thank you for that. You know, I, I, appreciate the in the essay as well you you kind of arrive at this point where you say well it helps to make the metaphor explicit to strip the veil of mystery away and stand Mm. naked in earnestness before the crowd and perhaps in this conversation also which has surfaced i think in different ways but might be helpful to just say more directly that this essay and perhaps much of this conversation is around the reactionary impulse towards collective panic and punishment as a means of achieving social control and safety from abusive violence is itself often a source of violence in an observable pattern across the political spectrum. Yes. You have this, yeah, you have this one follow-up line, which I love, which is, I think you're quoting another author here, but says, as the dominant culture has for hundreds of years repeatedly broken out over mass terror over the figure of the predator, or i.e. the monster, though the precise identity of the predator shifted from decade to decade, it's a monster with a thousand faces. Yes. Which, uh, yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant line there. And I, I see that in the sense of, so much of this, the the conversation around these like shifting forces, particularly around yeah gender, sort of yeah as I think you even said gender maybe liberation or something earlier mm-hmm. or yeah or trans experience or, or the the kind of I would call it I mean depending on where you're standing a kind of imposition right mm-hmm. on the norm of the, the sort of trans imposition this is the way it is now you gotta you know you gotta get on with the program yes. uh, <laughs> yes. or, you know or or but but just how much of that like it it it's so much more than a kind of for someone who caught in this this kind of monstering right within the from the say the mainstream or the i would maybe even call it the unintegrated erotic right yes. maybe that's another way to say it based on our conversation mm-hmm. there's something that is so destabilizing to the very axioms of their understanding of reality that that's this is where i see this this reactive panic can come from right and mm-hmm. I see it with like Jordan Peterson and folks that, you know, they have this kind of intense reactivity, yes. right? Because of it seems to be, it seems to be touching on more than just simply, look, live and let live, you know, preference is preference, you know, kind of thing. Like, as I'm sure you know, that there's something so deeply challenging to, to as I say, almost like the notions of reality. Like, what is reality? What is a woman? What is a man? I thought I knew. And now, mm-hmm. now, I, now what, everything's up for grabs, like this kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so I feel like what you're speaking to here is that, that that kind of illuminates, like, why does that destabilize so deeply reality for for the kind of conditioning of the dominant culture? And maybe I'd love to hear a bit more for your, from yourself on that. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, 
I really appreciate you pulling out that line about like the monster with a thousand faces, because I think the whole thing about this essay, and I think maybe you and I are having a conversation about trying to resist the narrative of of the monster as devil or the monster as villain, the unintegrated erotic as bad, right? And I, I think what's really important for us to know is that there's no such thing as an enlightened people of virtue who know who the monster is and like then can, you know, we'll defeat the monster and we'll live in the beautiful world. That's not really like a story that is real or one that I want to live in. And I, I think there's kind of the important, you know, it's what's really interesting is we can get lost in in archetype, like they can swallow us, right? Like with Jordan Peterson, I never, you know, I was never like a fan of the guy necessarily, but when he started blowing up in 2016, he was less reactive than he is now, right? Like there's something mm -hmm. about, like his rhetoric has really shifted and he's sort of been swallowed up by, by this fear. But it would be easy, I think too easy for those on the left to, to say, okay, well, you know, that guy's shitty. The real monster is white, cisgender, heterosexual men, right? Like the, the monster always shifts. And what's, what's really important to track is that wherever a community has decided or a dominant, wherever a culture has decided this one is the monster, we should get rid of them. Generally, that hasn't worked out well. You know, I, when when the American South was first into, uh, you know, introduced to integration, that was when actually, you know, like the first sex panic, uh, arguably the first sex panic of the 20th century emerged, which was, of course, the horrific demonization and murder of many Black men. And that same call to protection was used to, to justify those horrific murders, protect the white women and children. And then after that, in mid-century, in the mid-20th century, that same call, protect the children, protect the women, was used to justify violence against gay men, primarily, and, and lesbians also, and to create legislation that would lay the groundwork for the criminalization of queer people for the next 50 years. You know, we, we, we see this over and over again. And I think one of my favorite authors on this topic, who is, who is quoted in the essay, Joanne Wipajewski, she, she really asks us to... to, to to, to be deeply thoughtful about how we create monsters. Like sometimes when we point the finger and say, that's a monster, we are pointing at something that is violent or hurtful, like that, that, can't, that, had, that can be monstrous. When, when I look at white cisgender men and feel my fear rise up, right? I do see something that I'm scared of like for a good reason. But I want to invite, you know, in the essay and everyone around me just to think about like, it's not about all men are monsters. It's that all men have something monstrous inside them, just as all people do. And getting rid of the men or getting rid of the trans people or getting rid of all the Jordan Petersons or whatever, that's not gonna solve our problem. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You know, a couple of threads come to mind. One is it's a conversation with it was an indigenous guest on my podcast, The Mythic Masculine, where we, we also cover, you know, these different kind of themes. And, and one aspect came up around this idea of, again, like harm created in indigenous communities and the sense that there was almost like this recognition by the guest, who I, if I recall, was a woman saying, look, if all the men who were, you know, uh, offered troubled behavior or enacted troubled behavior in communities, there'd be no men left in the community. Uh and, right? and, and it wasn't and it wasn't from this place yeah because all men are terrible it wasn't it wasn't that it was this other thing it was like look we can't like you're saying just cast out every everyone who with troubling behavior because 
that doesn't leave many, you know, the purest left, which of course it will be pretty much no one. So that's there, that's present too. Now, I'm also recalling this uh, great line in your piece where you you kind of highlight the sense of like how to, almost like that that dual casting out also happens internally when, you know, for example, you say when the monster is discovered, you know, we draw our pitchforks and torches, we brand the beast and trample it to the ground. And yet we go home and in our beds and we dream mm-hmm. in our sinful dreams. We run free and wild through the woods with the taste of flesh between our teeth. In our dreams, we are the beast. Yeah. And there's something that highlights, yes, yeah, so beautifully that sense, right, of this. And, you know, in the day, in the light of the day, it's like, yes, you know, that bad over there, bad, bad, you know, pure, good. And then at <laughs> night, you know, the, the seductive darkness takes us over and, and perhaps more truthfully invites us into all the parts that we've cast out, you know, the, the carnality, the, 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 you know, the lustfulness, but really the deep sensual entanglement with, with life itself. Oh, yes. I mean, that's my favorite line in the whole essay. So thank you. <laughs> in my sinful dreams, I am the beast. Like, oh, you know, just marry me to the devil right now. But like, well, okay. Again, I always want to do these parallel examples because I'm very committed to resisting like the, the notion of like the right is stupid and bad and the left is good and amazing because it's not. Although I prefer the left, I will say. <laughs> but yeah, the dual example that comes to mind here for me is like, you know, this sort of almost hackneyed trope now of like the Republican white guy senator or like, you know, lawmaker of some kind who, you know, intensively campaigns for, you know, anti-gay laws Mm -hmm. and then at some point is caught in a hotel room with, you know, five or six, like, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in our sinful dreams, we're the beast. I think, you know, that is the unintegrated erotic, of course. I'm also, there's these amazing pink pigeons that are flying around outside my window as I'm talking about the unintegrated erotic, right? This is (laughs) kind of amazing. But, you know, but yeah, the the thing is that, you know, my, my favorite definition of a monster, which is very Jungian, is that a monster is the creature that we fear to see in the mirror that we recurrently see in others, right? So this, you know, the anti-gay Republican who's having sex with male sex workers is always like seeing his own feared reflection in, you know, all the gay men out there. All the, I mean, what I find fascinating about J.K. Rowling, actually, you know, famed author of the Harry Potter series and, you know, self-proclaimed gender critical feminist is that she, she released a statement in 20 or 2021 about her stance on on gender issues. And she comes out kind of saying she's trying to be nuanced. It's not the nuance that I would prefer. But the thing I find fascinating in that essay is she says that in her own adolescence, she felt gender dysphoria and might have been trans had she been raised in a different time. And, Mm. you know, I'm just like, oh my God, (laughs) like, you know, can we just sit down and talk about this? Like, (laughs) like, Like, there's just so much longing for the freedom of the monstrous inside us. And then, you know, to bring the left into this, what I see on the left, you know, is like this intense focus sometimes on like getting the right language, you know, always use the correct pronoun and never use an outdated term and don't make a problematic joke. And if you do, we'll Mm -hmm. cancel you, you know, Um, but like secretly... I mean, how many of us are like sitting in the living room and being like, oh my God, like I, you know, like I just like, thank God we're in private. So now that we can, 
we, you know, we, we can laugh, you know, about, about, mm -hmm. about edgy jokes, you know, and I'm not saying, again, I think we have to be careful about like, you know, like, let's not condone oppression. I'm just saying that we put on these spaces of goodness in, in the public mm -hmm. on the left. And then in private, we, we actually long for a different freedom. And again, I, I, there's so much here to be learned about what is the wisdom of the monster? Mm, beautiful. What is the wisdom of the monster? You know, I've got my eye on the time and I'm deeply appreciating our conversation. I'd love to bring up this tale, you know, the wisdom of the monster. And you actually reference beautifully the Eastern folktale of Vasilisa. Yes. In the right in the in the essay. And so, you know, I'm reading this, I'm just going, this is just this is too good. This is exactly the school, <laughs> what the school is about. And it's the, the visit to Baba Yaga, of yes. course, this sort of infamous figure of the sort of crone witch figure within, I think, largely a sort of Russian or Boreal cultures. But I'd be curious, again, if you you know, you brought that in intentionally, obviously you wrote about it, but mm -hmm. how do you see this as a either you know metaphor or a another archetype or a figure to help illuminate a different way forward when this, you know, thorny patch of complexity. Yes. Well, mm, Baba Yaga. <laughs> I love her so much. My, my, I guess my, my date, one of my dates would like to, would probably want me to say Baba Yaga is Ukrainian. <laughs> but uh -huh. yeah, anyway, she's, she's somewhere in there in, in like in, in Eastern Europe. You know, she, so Baba Yaga is, is the crone. She's the witch. And I think, you know, she's, Baba Yaga is so much like an archetypal witch that so powerful and so intense in her embodiment in myth and in image that maybe she is the monster in some cases. But I do like to distinguish the archetype of the witch and the archetype of the monster. And you can probably be both, right, uh, at the same time. But I think of the witch as, you know, the, the part of, like, as, as the part of the, the human that um, is unafraid of the woods, that has embraced the shadow and um, has come to know monsters, sometimes in the carnal sense too. We keep on talking about the, you know, about the erotic here. You know, we, we might really think about the witch as, as the one who consorts with the devil, right? And this was like actually like really, this is the source of some witch burnings, you know, in, in historic Salem and other kind of witch panics in colonial North America where the, the actual charge would be that women had gone into the woods, taken off their clothes and lain with the devil. And, you know, I'm just sort of like, that sounds kind of hot. <laughs> you know, like the witch is the one who knows that there is something to love in the monster, not just because they're sexy and cool, but because there's a wisdom in the monster. And the witch is the one who goes back and forth between the village and the woods, which is not an unfraught proposition. Sometimes you go into the woods, have some fun times with a monster, and then you come back and the villagers are like, we have to burn you to death, right? And mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, you, you go into the woods and meet a monster and the monster does eat you, like, you know, a la, you know, Little Red Riding Hood. What I love about Vasilisa the Brave is that she goes into the woods, literally, right? In the story, she goes into the woods and she does encounter monsters, you know, the knights that she sees on the path. But she then at the, at the bottom of the myth, like, you know, the, the descent into like the underworld that is the, you know, the heroine's journey, she encounters Baba Yaga. And what I really love about, you know, any kind of story where a woman goes into the woods and encounters a witch instead of a monster is that she's encountering, I think, like the reflection of her own monstrous feminine, 
Baba Yaga then gives, you know, you know, asks Vasilisa to undertake trials. Vasilisa succeeds at the trials, you know, spoiler. And Baba Yaga gives her a skull full of flame. And, you know, Vasilisa returns to the village, you know, with her skull full of flame. And, you know, the events that unfold next are the events that unfold next, which I won't spoil. But there is, I think, this thing about if we go into the shadows of the woods and meet the witch inside of us, like the part of us that knows, there is power both in the shadows of the forest and the monsters, and there is also goodness in the village. And we can integrate the two, right? Because Vasilasa meets Baba Yaga, Vasala, yeah, she meets Baba Yaga, and then she also returns. Like that's important. Uh, the thing about that story too is that you know she brings her mother's doll, and it meets the witch. Like you know, there's the bringing together of mm-hmm. of the light and the dark. It is really about integration. Like the whole thing is about integration. And, you know, I'm starting to lose you know, the train of thought here. But I think that the theme I'm going for is what that story and similar stories have to offer us is, I think the, the archetype that really knows the way forward, like the path to bringing together the village and the woods, is the witch. Mm. Beautiful. I want to spend some more time there as well. That It strikes me that the crone also is a, is a you know, sort of archetypal um, figure is in many ways in the relation to the erotic is it, like it operates outside of the sort of I would call it almost like an adolescent patriarchal paradigm Ooh. and right and the way that I understand that and also you know again whenever I say the word patriarchy I always I, I don't like it as a shorthand for again a kind of everything that's wrong patriarchy but I understand why there's a need to label a sort of a construct right of, of an ecosystem mm-hmm. of of harm and oppression and a certain uh, power dynamic. But for me, the the deeper lens I like to use is Rian Eisler's from Chalice and the Blade, right? She uses the dominator, right, paradigm. Ooh, I think Bell Hooks, oh, Bell Hooks might probably also reference this. Yes, I think so. But there's, so, but in terms of the erotic, right, it's very interesting that pretty much in the, in that paradigm, I would, again, that the sort of adolescent masculinity paradigm, the maiden is the prize possession, right? The, you Ooh. know, the sort of virginal, pure maiden, right, is the, that's the, you know, the pinnacle of essentially a kind of a kind of resource, right? A kind of a prize in a way, a, a richness. And then the mother typically is, you know, maybe may celebrated in a initially, right? In sort of the oncomingness of giving birth and, and a sort of ability to give life as an ability to pass on wealth and, 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 and that whole, you know, inheritance within a system of sort of coveting resource again, that makes sense, right? Like the mother, you know, is, is, is deeply celebrated and respected generally until after birth. And then, you know, depending on the, the what culture <laughs> and it's sort of, side. yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like, nope. Again, according to a sense of like, what's, what's erotically valuable. Right. Mm-hmm. And then of course, older women are typically just not even on the radar, right? They're just, mm-hmm. they're just because they're basically invisible uh, according to that, you know, system. And so in terms of these older cultural understandings and these mythic understandings, right, the crone doesn't doesn't fit into a, a sort of type of feminine that is can be consumed. That's the mm-hmm. way I'd say it, right? Mm-hmm. An adolescent feminine of sort of maiden virginal purity that can be consumed by that kind of predatory consumption. It, op- it operates in a very different spectrum of a kind of erotic that is vaster than a kind of feminine power that can be dominated mm-hmm. right that's mm-hmm. that's how i understand it and of course there's a brilliant scene in parsival and the grail where really the the a similar bobby yaga figure is the one that basically tells parsival you asked the wrong question buddy like get out of here yes. and, and of course he sets him off you know on his quest again to come back around 
and is described often as this like you know just horrible figure of you know not sexy <laughs> the opposite but but there's a fascination there right so so for me that's very intriguing right that it's that's this character that doesn't fit within uh, the confines of a kind of eroticism that is sort of valued within that paradigm right mm -hmm. but is actually is actually the 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 weave between the mm -hmm. village and the woods you know so anyway i wanted to add a bit of that too in my own tracking that, that. Uh, that that's feels so yeah, in alignment i think with what you're saying and to see yeah like so what is it's almost like translating the monster maybe that's what yes. i might say it. yeah and yes to hear more. well you know that's so i'm so glad you brought that to my attention because i actually hadn't done a deep dive in that direction but now i will have to which is great um mm. Because, of course, in real life, those who were burnt as witches often were, um, you know, um, older women, <laughs> uh, poor women, unmarried women, women who did not fit, <laughs> um, like um, who, who, who either refused to be consumed or were not consumed. Right. And, and so we're kind of on the edge in, in this way. Mm. Um, and, and maybe that is what it is. Like in, in the archetype, you know, the crone doesn't fit. And so she has to haunt the edges of the village you know, where she's then susceptible to the woods and getting to know the monstrous. And in real life, you know, the witches are, you know, are embodied, the witches embodied by those of us, the crone, who who don't fit. And I, I think this is a thing about trans people, <laughs> not only trans people, but, you know, like a group of people, yeah, like trans people, disabled folks, like when when we don't fit into the hierarchy of like the patriarch's economy of desire, there's really no choice but to find like another way of accessing like joyful embodiment or pleasurable embodiment, right? Like I think the great gift that queer culture does give me and, and a lot of other people is that on a very literal level, we have redefined sex, <laughs> like in a lot of ways that are like quite beautiful actually, like, you know, if from the, if from the perspective of the heterosexual nuclear family, like, queer people are the witches and the monsters, right? Because we're, you know, uh, until recently, we, we tended to be like unmarried people, <laughs> like with like age into like apparent spinsterhood or whatever. But what maybe a lot of heterosexuals don't know about, about queer people is that we tend to be having pretty amazing sex. <laughs> <laughs> and building really kind of cool kinship networks out of that, that, you know, the village of heterosexuality might enjoy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> there was a couple of great, yeah, great gems there with the, I think you called it the pa patriarch's economy of desire. Yes. Right, or something like that. Well, oh, mm -hmm. got to remember that. And then this uh, other piece, yeah, the village of what do you say? The village of heterosexuals? <laughs> yeah, the village of heterosexuals. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. What what comes to me again? This is now a question of you know again. It's a curiosity that that sort of swims up around, essentially like an approach to social. I don't know. If design is quite the right word, but almost like the social architecture. Because you know, I follow certain accounts of on Instagram that are you know very. I would call them almost like. Tr very traditional, almost almost like a, a regressive traditional right sort of resurgence. And they're by youngers, you know, younger men in particular, it seems like younger white men who have oh. this like, you know, they're this, I mean, one's called masculine revival and, you know, this kind of stuff. Oh, okay. And and there's a, there's a very, I would call it like longing and almost and even like a kind of a vehement stance to return to what they consider to be a kind of, you know, simpler time of relational mm. dynamics were much more clear 
you know, the man is the head of the household, the women, you know, and I parody a little bit, but I also, I, you know, I have a bit of sympathy for a sense of the simplicity, not of power over the woman to be like, you do what I say, that's the best way. It's not quite like that, right? It's this, it's this kind of noble depiction often of this, you know, the woman has her domain of the home, but that's, she's very well, you know, trusted and as her insight and intuition and the man is the protector. And then, you know, the, the kids and that's the best a vessel for a kind of stable society, right? Like that's Ooh. usually where it, where it right. kind of comes down to. And so for me, you know, again, I see, a, I have the a compassion for that understanding and I almost have this curiosity because if I, so if I say, okay, that's, that's that understanding of that paradigm, right? That it's like Ooh. the nuclear family unit is the core, you know, block of that culture Ooh. or that, that social understanding. And then that's built upon, you know, you have, I guess, you know, communities or streets or whatever it is. And then you have like sure. society and then you have civilization. So from that, that to me is, I guess, the, the kind of architectural DNA of, of domination culture, I might say. And Ooh. again, I don't say that even kind of cynically in a sense, because that, that kind of embeds a certain degree of understanding of power dynamics. Right. Yeah. And, and I have a certain degree of sympathy in a sense of, what is quote a stable vessel of home because mm -hmm. of course when families blow apart for whatever reason of course you know it, it really is devastating of course to children to not have a certain degree of stability right in, in their oh, home yes, and, and, for sure. right, and a sense of mm -hmm. yeah so so i'm not and again romanticizing that understanding but i am curious for you that like you know so here's here's folks maybe on that in that village that's sort of teetering or burning down in some ways right and they're like where do we go? Or like, what's this other village you're talking about? You know, like, because yeah. <laughs> like, how does, how is society organized ultimately within, uh, you know, is it a, you know, a relational anarchy, you know, and I, you know, I studied that in a bit, even practice that for a bit, but some oh. sense of, you know, there's no, there's no hierarchy anymore. It's like, everybody's equal. And like, how, how does that arrange society in some way that feels stable enough, you know, to, to kind of uphold I don't say civilization as it is, because obviously that's pretty problematic. But anyway, I just was curious for you to ruminate on that for a second, right? Like, what do you see emerging in, as a kind of social fabric in, mm. in you know, an, a community of others in a way from, you know, the dominant paradigm? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think my whole thing is that sort of the curse of the village in the woods is that you know, we brand the monsters and they're driven out and then they try to create the monsters then declare themselves the new humans and like make a new village. <laughs> uh, that's like sort of the difficult story of my life is that I think queer community, like the community of others, like the, the village of monsters declares itself the new humans and then creates new rules. And that has been my, actually my, my experience is that a lot of queer communities have unfortunately you know, have, have their own struggles to deal with when it comes to um, reenacting power dynamics and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I will say, you know, what's sympathetic about all of that to me, you know, like the, what was it you said? Like the new masculine or something? <laughs> or like the Masculine revival or something. Yes, masculine revival. Like I can sympathize. I think the flip of that too is like the trad wife, uh, like kind of trend, like all these young women who are like, I love to bake. Like, I'm like, good, good yeah, for you. Totally. you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, and then, you know, queer people being like, yeah, you know, let's all get the same asymmetrical haircut. You know, like, you know, that kind <laughs> of like, I'm, I'm parodying here, right? Of course, but you know, like, yeah is that we long for a village. We long for a stable unit, even if none of it was ever real. Like, I'm not really sure I believe that like the, the patriarch and the matriarch and the children, like that that was the way things like were because I'm, 
I have this, I'm not a historian, but I just have this sense that, it, I mean, especially in East Asia and indigenous cultures, North America, the family actually was like a much bigger unit comprised of much of many more generations, right? Mm -hmm. But I guess I would say, you know, the community of others creates this fabric of chosen family. And although it doesn't always work out, I think the great gift of a queer villages, literal and, you know, figurative, mythological, is that the message is nobody fits forever. Mm. Nobody fits forever. And it, the, the stable unit does fall apart. And then we can actually find one another and, and create new structures based on desire rather than on rulemaking. And that's really important because... Yes, there could be a man and a woman and three to ten children, but always in the ten children, one of them will be disabled and not actually a candidate for marriage in the patriarch's economy of desire. Some of the children will be lesbians. Eventually, the patriarch will die, and what will happen to the widow, right? Just going on, you know, averages of lifespan or whatever. Like, the, the, the unit will dissolve, and then what? Right. And that's why, you know, the, the community of others, the village of queers is like always there, like kind of on the other side of the woods saying, you know, eventually you'll come to us, right? which they then do. And then we have all our own troubles. And I think the, you know, the, the last thing I'll say about this is I think that part of the answer is the village of others or the village of queers or whatever we want to call it, knows something that the village of the patriarch doesn't just because we have had to, We've been kicked out of the village of the patriarch. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to learn something from that. But we don't know everything. And I think it's that we return to emergence here. You know, we live in a collapsing world, climate crisis, you know, AI is taking over jobs, you know, all, all this change. Mm -hmm. we, we don't know what the social fabric is going to be. And I think there's something really important about just allowing the chaos to happen while holding on to like some kind of value of you know, reciprocity or right relationship so that we can see what comes next. And I think when we try too hard to go back to the past or, you know, we, we have some sort of idealized future and we try to force it to happen the way that the, you know, that the, <laughs> like the communist did in the fifties, mm. like we're going to, we're going to run into tragedy, like even more tragedy than necessary that way. Mm. You, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the sort of, yeah, the village of other so what does that have to teach, you know, the the dominant village, the village of the patriarchs? And that to me strikes me as this kind of deeper layers of trans, right? As mm -hmm. as something that travels across, right? Or mm -hmm. sort of my understanding, right, of the etymology. Yes. And versus maybe sub subversive in a sense, right? Which is maybe typically how it sort of tends to be used. But this idea of like, so what is the medicine of one who can travel across? Yes. Right. And, and in a sense, it's the, you know, the, the recognition of the trickster is present in that. Right. That the one mm -hmm. that can can decouple from and see outside of a paradigm that can um, be constricting and, of course, has been in so many ways and creates harm. And then also come, come go go across to say, yeah, the village in the woods and then return again. And so that to me is that's missed. Right. In the, the, the panic. Right. Yes. This, this sort of the triangulation of you know, good guys, you know, victim, monster, like it, that, as you say, like that comes from, it seems to be this deep longing for some kind of certainty in a, an increasingly chaotic world. 
And so that there's there can be compassion for that, of course, right? To say, well, every, with everything shifting, is like, wow, what can I what can I hang on to? You know, what's like the life raft in all of this, and mm-hmm. yet, and that that can invoke this reactive triangulations that simply create and perpetuate patterns that you know, reinforce right where we've been. And if we need yes. to get somewhere, if we truly need to get somewhere new, or perhaps a, a new iteration mm-hmm. of, I would call it, you know, in the in the spiral of what has been and what could be that mm-hmm. a different kind of intelligence, a different kind of skill set is needed to navigate. Yes. And and this is where, again, I love in the essay, you've, you've arrived at, you know, a number of sort of key, you know, tenants, but also, of course, emergence, which you've named below as well. And so maybe I'd love to spend a bit more time there as well of what do you, when you say cultivate emergence, right, within this capacity, how does that provide a way of, of navigating and, and being nimble in a sense, right, of, of what seems to be needed in these times. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, of course, here we must shout out Emergent Strategy by, you know, the genius Adrian Marie Brown, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who, you know, I think really inspires, you know, in many ways this essay, many conversations, you know, um, out there in the world and, and the one that you and I are having now. Um, you know, for me, cultivating emergence is, oh my gosh, like, like I, <laughs> I really love this description of the spiral between what could be, what has been, and what could be. Like for me, it's about staying in the question, right? Like emergence, cultivating it means I think like developing the skill set to be in complexity and to be in chaos, and to create and be with pattern inside of chaos without rigidly adhering to the pattern. It's a set of principles, right? And I think the Mm. example that Adrian uses a lot is like the example of flocking or like, you know, Mm. how do the birds know what formation to be in when they're Mm. in a flock of, you know, hundreds or thousands, they're following embodied principle. They know they should be a certain distance from this other bird and like, like all this kind of thing, you know, and humans can do this too. I was actually just in a theater for living workshop with David Diamond, who's an, another genius out there on the West Coast. And we were just doing these simple theater games, you know, that are about creating community. And those simple games, you know, emerge something really deep from within us, which is that actually if we just, if we let go of what, of what we think should be, like, and we lean into the chaos of like, whoa, like we're running around with all these other human beings and maybe our eyes are closed or something, you know, maybe we're touching each other. I don't know. Patterns that are deeply meaningful and really powerful do emerge. And that doesn't mean we never use discernment. Like we do actually have to like say, no, that kind of pattern is not what we're going for. Or this behavior is, you know, not appropriate to this community. But we're not saying like, oh, you know, we have to we have to make this particular image real life. We're saying, okay, let's be with one another, follow some basic principles, and see what happens. And I, I think there's this willingness to to see what's going to happen. That is the core of emergence for me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I love that image. And the curiosity I have too is like like how to be in a like what to what to listen for in a sense, or even how to track one's own reactivity, right? Uh-huh. Especially now when when there's it's so easy, right? Of course, to just suddenly get on you know Twitter or whatever and and just <laughs> launch into write some some reactive comments and and immediately triangulate, right? So I guess that's my curiosity too: is what might you offer, even from a say in a, a somatic or an embodied lens, right? To say, wait a second, okay, how to notice when I'm I'm, I'm locking myself into these 
you know, paradigm? And like, what do I need to attune to, to bring back a sense of maybe, you know, nuance or flexibility or presence, right? That might mm. be useful. I wonder if you might have any just little tools, you know, as we close our conversation today. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, that's a deep conversation. I, I would say, you know, in the generative somatics lineage, they say you are what you practice or you become what you practice. And so I think the first step is like, when we talk about reactivity is noticing like, okay, how often am I the person who like jumps online and makes a bunch of comments without getting into another person's perspective? Like how much do I, does my body follow the pattern of this is the way, the only right way, and I will not consider, you know, these other people's ways because then they'll contaminate me, right? And there's, there's like, there is usually a felt sense to that pattern as there is a felt sense to every pattern. And that felt sense tends to be this like kind of constricted kind of racing heart I must defend. And, you know, the, 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 the words even become patterned, like protect the children, protect the children, protect the children, like becomes this sort of mantra that drives reactive behavior. But if what we really want is to cultivate emergence and actually like protect people in a, in a nurturing and generative way, I would say that the, the first step is just to pause. Like when we feel the impulse inside of us to, you know, leap forward and get online or to like jump in front of somebody and point the accusing finger, that's all still an option. I wouldn't want to take that option away from people. I think just something to add is, you know, what my teacher, Catherine Jesse, calls the sacred pause. When we feel the impulse just to stop and be like, oh, okay, I'm having the impulse. Are there other impulses? Are there other possibilities, right? Mm. I'm allowed to feel more than one thing at the same time. And I think just that single moment, that sacred pause, if we were all doing it, like individually and collectively, we'd have a lot more power to, to interrupt the cycle of panic. Mm. Beautiful. Sacred pause. Mm. Thank you for that. And, you know, just a few minutes left, and I trust actually our, our viewers have just been transfixed. And so, yeah, we didn't have any particularly questions come in, but I, I consider that a good sign of just like, well, I think we've been hit the mark and mm. I've certainly enjoyed this conversation. I understand. So one, the essay in question that we've referenced, you know, quite a few times now mm. is not actually published as I not said. Not yet. Given a <laughs> preview. I understand it will be, maybe you could just name, yeah, when you intend to publish it and where it'll appear. Yeah. You know, it's the draft is finished at long last and it's going through a few trusted friends editing eyes. And then I intend to release it as a free ebook on my website. And I'm giving myself a deadline for that of, of the 1st of September. So mm-hmm. if folks are interested, I would say, you know, maybe follow me on Instagram or find my website and, and look, look keep, keep, ones, keep their eyes out for, for the launch of that by September. Mm, beautiful. And I've uh, yeah, brought your website up there on the, the bottom of the screen. So there are folks oh, can check out your work, your writings, probably other interviews. And uh, yeah, access this ebook, The Village in the Woods, when it becomes available. I'll certainly update the show notes here as well once that becomes available for folks to check that out. And uh, you have a book, as I mentioned, coming out in just a few days. Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Thank you so much for giving some time for that. Yeah, so on August 1st, which is incredibly soon, (laughs) Falling Back in Love with Being Human, Letters to Lost Souls will come out. Uh, This is my sixth book. And in a nutshell, it is a series of letters that I wrote in 2021 to to all my personal monsters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Monsters like people I don't like or 
monsters like parts of myself I don't like. It was mm. an attempt to to love the monster. Hmm. Beautiful. And I love that as a practice, as you said, like to write them letters. Right. What a yeah. beautiful what a beautiful way of communicating communing in a way. Well, yeah, maybe that's a thing. Like if, if folks are listening out there and wanna wanna try something, pick a monster. Pick like one of your personal monsters and, and write them a love letter. See what happens. <laughs> beautiful practice. Okay. Well, Kai Cheng Tom, I think maybe that's it for this conversation. It's so so delighted to spend time with you in this way and to converse and yeah, I hope to do it again at some point. Oh yes. Future. Thanks so much for this time and for your wonderful questions. I've had a lot of fun, so I hope we get to connect again. Thanks so much. Mm, thank you. And uh, all those who tuned in live and uh, who will tune in to this in the recording in the future. Thanks yes. again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and share on your social media. Once again, you're also invited to find The Mythic Masculine on Substack. You'll be able to subscribe to forthcoming episodes as well as become a paid supporter. Visit themythicmasculine.com supporter to learn more.